Well, now that Resurrection Sunday has come and gone, we're about to finish our Christmas series. I'm thankful for that. Backstage before Bethlehem, we have been examining the major appearances of the angel of the Lord. And just one more time, this is a technical designation for the pre-birth physical manifestation of the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, before his birth, all throughout the Old Testament. For me personally, this series has been kind of a monumental journey. I first wrote a little tiny research paper on the angel of the Lord in seminary, and I've been fascinated by Christ in the Old Testament ever since. So for me, this was a dream come true to preach on every major appearance of the angel of the Lord. For me, I went from a little page, a little uh, 10 page paper, to now having compiled about 400 pages of notes on the angel of the Lord. And it's been a tremendous uh, journey for me just to get to know our Savior better. And really, for all of us, we understand that if you know Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, if you've had your sins forgiven by the mercy of God, then for all of us, it is a delight to know Christ more and more. And, and of course, we know him so well and so clearly in the New Testament Gospels, but I think it's been a treat to see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ all through the Old Testament as well. And it's given us an indication of how consistent God is, how, how behind his own redemptive program. In fact, I want to spend just a few minutes kind of reliving some highlights and making some observations about the appearances of the angel of the Lord that we've seen so far as we finish our series tonight. Every appearance, we identified one main purpose, one singular goal or purpose for the angel of the Lord. And I just want to walk through those and then make a couple of observations. Going all the way back to Genesis 16 and 21, we saw the angel of the Lord appearing to Hagar, the mistress of Abraham who gave birth to Ishmael. His purpose was to impart saving grace, to impart saving grace. And immediately we saw that the angel of the Lord is in the business of giving grace to the downcast, giving grace to the hopeless. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord saved Abraham's son Isaac from being sacrificed by Abraham as God had commanded him in order to test his obedience. And the angel of the Lord came at that time to provide a substitute sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket to be offered instead. And this was important because from Isaac would come God's chosen nation of Israel. And so, speaking of which, in Genesis 24, we saw the angel of the Lord helping Abraham's servant, Eleazar, to find a wife for Isaac, to find Rebekah. And so the angel of the Lord's purpose was to pick Israel's mother, to pick the mother of the nation. Rebekah's son, Jacob, who would be renamed Israel, is dealt with by the angel of the Lord in Genesis 31 and 32. And the purpose is to give Jacob true faith in God, to demonstrate true faith in Jacob. Jacob has children and his family eventually are moved to Egypt in a famine. And Egypt eventually enslaves the children of Israel as they become several million strong. And so now the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. And what was the purpose? To redeem God's nation. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in Exodus 3. He comes as the destroyer of the firstborn of Egypt. In Exodus 12, he comes as the protector of Israel at the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, and as the warrior on Israel's behalf in Exodus 23. And so the angel of the Lord is, is deeply and intimately involved with the redemption of God's nation. 
And then, just as Israel is close to the conquest of Canaan, the angel of the Lord appears to Balaam, the enemy of Israel, to thwart the scheming enemies who would come against his chosen nation. And just before the conquest is about to begin, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua, the new leader of Israel, and the purpose was now to plant Israel's flag, to give them their new nation. But Israel, although they are God's chosen nation, they became dreadfully sinful. And so during the time of the judges, the angel of the Lord appears frequently in the role, in the role of both disciplining and helping Israel. He appears in Judges chapter 2 with the purpose of announcing coming discipline. He appears in Judges 6 and 7 to reignite Israel's love for God. And he appears in Judges 13 to provide Israel's hero, Samson, who in a very imperfect sense would save Israel from her enemies and be really a model of the Savior to come. We fast forward to the days of King David in 2 Samuel 24, and the angel of the Lord appears then to purify God's people because they had become prideful. And a purified people must be a worshiping people. So the angel of the Lord now comes to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and 2 Kings 1, his purpose to defend true worship, that you may only worship God as a true believer. And in 2 Kings 19, when Israel is in trouble, surrounded by a horde of Assyrians, the angel of the Lord comes in might, and his purpose is to preserve Israel's remnant as he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. But eventually, in discipline, Israel is taken off into captivity, and yet God will still protect his own remnant. And so the angel of the Lord appears in Daniel chapter 3 in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his purpose to save true worshipers. And then in Daniel 6, saving Daniel in the lion's den, the angel of the Lord comes to make the pagan king Darius, his purpose, declare God's dominion. And last time, we saw that the angel of the Lord came in Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 3 to intercede on behalf of sinful man, to pray to God the Father on behalf of sinners. I just briefly want to make two observations about these purposes for the coming of the angel of the Lord. The first one is they seem to follow a progression. They follow a progression. It begins with a demonstration of the grace of God to save Hagar and Ishmael, it proceeds to the formation, the discipline, and the protection of Israel. It moves on to declaring the might of God. And finally, to the means of salvation, and that is the ministry of interceding for sinful mankind. Now, why is this important? This is important because it parallels the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. It is a, it is a, a direct parallel. The very appearing of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of the grace of God. He deals with Israel, preaching and healing and calling her to repentance. He declares the might of God. How? With his preaching and certainly with his miracles. And he goes to the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him. And is even now doing what? Interceding for all who are his. And so the progression of the ministry of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament very much parallels the ministry of Christ on earth. The second observation, the ministry of the angel of the Lord proves that God never gives up on Israel. He proves that God never gives up on Israel. The angel of the Lord is dealing with Israel almost 100% of the time. And at the beginning, he is dealing with Hagar, who's not 
a Jew, it does show that God will deal graciously with Gentiles as well. So you get that up front. But the angel of the Lord is first concerned for Israel, through whom would come Christ, his own birth, who then would offer salvation to the Gentile as well. But we cannot make this mistake. The angel of the Lord was all over the Old Testament on behalf of Israel. When Christ first came to earth, he said he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. Then he would turn to the Gentile. Listen, this is so important because any theological system which says that God has dispensed with his love for Israel, God is done with his future dealing with Israel as a nation, if you believe that, then you must tell the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all those 17, 18, 19, 20 appearances in the Old Testament, depending on how you count them, all of those was a monumental waste of time. I would never want to face the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, and say something idiotic like the church is the new Israel. He invested over a period of thousands of years in his people. Now, after seeing the parallels to the ministry of Christ in the New Testament and seeing this definite progression in regards to Israel and to salvation, what would we expect to be the final discussion in regards to the angel of the Lord? If the ministry of the angel of the Lord has paralleled the New Testament revelation of Christ, we would expect the final discussion to concern the coming of Christ to rule on earth, wouldn't we? After all, that's where the Bible ends, outlining the return of Christ to judge all the nations, to winnow out the the false believers from both Israel and all other peoples. Revelation 19, Christ then will set up his kingdom rule in Israel as the king of Israel and as the king of all the kings, ruling with perfect fairness, perfect equity. Revelation 20 says this, So if you think that the Old Testament ministry of the angel of the Lord will end the same way the New Testament ministry of Christ does, you would be correct. Because the final words of the Old Testament are in essence parallel to the final thoughts of the New Testament. And both concern the coming reign of Christ to establish God's kingdom on earth. So turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. We'll begin in chapter 2, but we'll spend most of our time in chapters 3 and 4. The final appearance of the angel of the Lord. And it'll take a little while for us to get to him. Now, like the book of Revelation, the focus on the coming of Christ to rule on earth is very Israel-centered because that's a major theme in the Bible as God's faithfulness to Israel, which, of course, this has been a running theme with the angel of the Lord. Israel is God's chosen nation through whom salvation will come to all who would believe and which will be the capital nation of earth for all time, according to Revelation 22. So we're going to see some elements of the coming of Christ to set up God's kingdom on earth as it relates to Israel. And that's important because that's what the Bible emphasizes. So very simply, I want to show you four elements of the coming of Christ to set up God's kingdom as it relates to Israel. The first element of the coming of Christ we'll call the refinement of Israel. The refinement of Israel. Now, let's kind of set this up for a moment here. What is the book of Malachi all about? Well, Malachi is all about the sinful response to disappointment. Malachi is the final prophet of the Old Testament 
The exiles who returned to Israel had been encouraged by the prophets Zechariah and Haggai to rebuild the temple, but more importantly, to be spiritually reformed and obedient to the Lord once again. But the reforms urged by Zechariah and, and Haggai, they didn't bring about the kingdom. And perhaps some of the people thought, hey, where is Messiah? Where is this kingdom that's supposed to come? And all of God's covenant promises, they didn't come about either. And so not only did the people complain, as they had a history of doing all throughout the Old Testament, but once again they wandered very quickly into spiritual apathy and disobedience. In fact, the people were making a joke now of the sacrificial system. They were bringing their worst offerings instead of their best. They were bringing blind animals, lame animals, these insulting gifts to God. And the priests, many of them were just as bad. They were not honoring the name of the Lord. Their so-called faith was purely external without true hearts. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. And now the horrible disobedience, the apathy of the people toward God is summarized in chapter 2, verse 17, the very end of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Did you catch what's happening now in Israel? All that is evil is now being considered good. And it follows then that all that is good is now being considered evil. See also our culture today. Listen, you vote for liberals who believe everything that God hates and hate everything that God loves. I don't honestly know how you can call yourself a Christian and do that. Because our culture has done exactly what Israel happened. They've turned everything upside down. That which is good is considered evil. That which is evil is considered good. And the people are now daring to ask, where is the God of justice? Meaning, why doesn't God do what we want when we want it? Why doesn't God bow to our agenda? See also typical American evangelicalism, that God is there to fulfill my dreams and my agenda. And now, chapters 3 and 4 comprise God's answer to this question. And the answer is all about the kingdom of God in Christ. Now, for the sake of time, we're just going to kind of hit some highlights. First element of the coming of Christ, the refinement of Israel. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord is coming. He's returning. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 3, But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So there's two word pictures here used of Christ's coming. First picture is the refiner's fire. This speaks of the intense fire used to melt down precious metals. And then you had the dross, the waste rising to the top and you scooped it up and you repeated this process. It was, it was quite an involved process, but it involved great heat and melting everything down to separate the good from the bad. 
And we're fairly familiar with that. We're probably less familiar with Fuller's soap. What is this? Well, the Fuller was one who cleaned and whitened raw wool or cloth. It was dirty. It was smelly. They used harsh soaps with chemicals mixed in them. The recipes for these soaps were closely guarded family secrets. It was the family business. It was so smelly, so filthy that the Fullers worked outside the city. And while it was soaking, the Fullers, uh, Fuller is just from a Hebrew word which means to stomp or to tread. They would have all this cloth and all this dirty wool in a giant vat with these soaps in it, and they'd be stomping around on it. And it just stunk to high heaven. But you were glad for the Fullers because your cloth that you got back was pure and white. And so that's how the Lord, when he comes, will purify, how he will refine. Verse 3 says that the Lord will purify the sons of Levi, from whom come the priesthood. But we can infer that he's also speaking of all of Israel, because this is a nationwide purification. And what's the result? Verse 4, the offerings now brought to the Lord will be pleasing to the Lord, because they're brought in faith, they're brought in obedience. Now, we have to make a historical note here. This has never happened yet. This has never happened. Israel as a nation has never pleased God with her obedient and faithful sacrifices offered from a heart of genuine faith, which were the means by which they would receive and enjoy the covenant blessings of God. That has never happened. And since the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, the sacrificial system has been defunct. So when will the offerings of Israel be pleasing to the Lord once again? Well, the book of Ezekiel tells us, Ezekiel 43 through 46 gives extensive detail in the larger context of Ezekiel 40 through 48 concerning the coming kingdom of Christ of reinstituted animal sacrifices. Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, Zechariah 14, 16, Jeremiah 33, 15, all reference a reinstituted sacrificial system and festivals. Now, If you know your New Testament, you're thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't fit. How does this fit with the fact that Jesus Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, is our once for all sacrifice for sin? Doesn't this feel like a step backwards? Well, we have to remember something. This is the key to the whole thing. If you have a problem with reinstituted animal sacrifices, here's the key right now to unlock this issue. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament never permanently remove sin. They never did. Hebrews 10 says they were simply a shadow of the things to come. They served as an object lesson of the high cost of sin, that the wages of sin is what? Is death. Romans 3.20 says that the works of the law, sacrifices, cannot cause the justification of the sinner. Rather, the sacrificial system brought the knowledge of sin. Multiple times a year, you took your best animal and you slit its throat and you bled it out. And you saw with your own eyes that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And so the reinstitution of the sacrificial system is not somehow in competition with the atoning work of Christ. That's not the case at all. What it is, is the opportunity for Israel to finally, finally, as a nation, receive all the covenant promises that God promised, all the blessings to finally get it right as it were. The sacrifices offered 
won't be a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ yet to come. It'll be a glorious reminder to all of the sacrifice of Christ, which has already been accomplished. In fact, the sacrifices will serve very much the same purpose in the coming kingdom as the Lord's table serves for us today. We remember what? The body and the blood of Christ. This is a refined Israel offering sacrifices based in genuine faith in the Lord through Christ. One final note about the refinement of Israel at the coming of Christ. Jesus will make very short work of all fakers, of all the faults. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, this is a very similar list to the Apostle Paul that he gives in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 about the false believer with whom we are not to fellowship. It's the same list. So the refinement of Israel will happen at the coming of Christ. There's a second element of the coming of Christ. We'll call this the indictment of Israel. The indictment of Israel. As a nation, as a people, as a whole, God indicts his unfaithful nation for their recalcitrant impatience, their lack of faith in God. He begins with grace, though, verse 6 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He starts his indictment with an assurance that Israel as a nation will never be taken out of covenant with God. Israel as a nation will always, always, always be in God's program. Why is this? Well, he says, because the Lord does not change. He doesn't make a promise and then go back on it. He made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a a mighty nation in their own land, and God intends to keep that promise in the coming kingdom of Christ. By the way, this is the same reason Paul gave for expecting a future for Israel in Romans 3, Romans 9, Romans 11. Why? The Lord doesn't change. But for the moment, in Malachi's day, Israel was faithless again as a nation, and God gives a specific example of their unfaithfulness as an entire nation. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Then skip over to verse 13. Verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping this charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. By the way, you may have noticed now that all throughout Malachi, God asks questions that he knows are in the people's hearts. Chapter 2, verse 17, how have we wearied him? Same verse, where is the God of justice? 3, 7, how shall we return? 3, 8, how have we robbed you? 3, 13, how have we spoken against you? If you think you'll get away with having a bad attitude toward God, he already knows what your questions are. But the specific example here of Israel's unfaithfulness is that they've stopped taking the worship of God 
And the idea of a theocratic nation with God as their true king, they've stopped taking all this seriously. How do we know this? Because the tithes and the offerings that were given to support the Levites who ran the temple, ran the sacrificial system, and in turn the Levites were to give a tithe, a tenth of their, their tithe to the priests to support their work in the ministry to God. What does this say? It says they no longer think this is important. What did Jesus say about this sort of attitude? Matthew six twenty one: for where your treasure is, there your what? heart will be also the treasure of god's people in malachi's day was just trickling in bare bones gifts making it necessary for the levites and the priests to find other ways to make a living wall in order to supplement their meager income what does this mean it meant that the people had a low view of the ministers of god which always reflects a low view of god himself every time why were the people so apathetic Well, they thought that God was supposed to bless them with prosperity if they brought their offerings, but it wasn't happening. Verse 14, they said, it is vain to serve God, meaning, hey, we brought our offerings a couple times, but what good has it done us? And on top of that, in verse 15, they were observing that people who kept all their money seemed to be getting rich. Look, this guy over here is not generous at all. He is stingy and he has money. I'm trying to be generous and I don't have anything. And that sounds like a reasonable argument, but they were only half right. God would bless them if their offerings were brought, but they had to be brought with a heart of faith and love for the Lord. Our current capital campaign, I wore the tie again, just so you know. My wife picked it out for me. We've called it joyful generosity, not generosity. If we just said, let's have a campaign called generosity, that doesn't say anything about our hearts. The joyful generosity says this is a heart issue. So the indictment against Israel was a failure to believe that God would bless them if they served him with a whole heart. They were, they were partial in their faith. They held back. They brought their sacrificial gifts to him with a heart of service and joy and thankfulness. They could have done that, but they didn't. They just did the bare minimum. It's sort of like a church member who says, I'm only going to come once a month to see if the Lord blesses this church before I commit. Well, if everybody does that, what is that? That's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I'm only going to give a little bit before I see if the Lord blesses the church. If everybody does that, then, then that's a wrong heart attitude. And so the indictment against Israel is that they failed to believe God. They failed to trust Him. There's the third element of the coming of Christ. We'll call this the blessing of Israel. The blessing of Israel. Now, right now, I know your brain is doing a double take. You might be saying, wait a minute. First, you say God is indicting faithless Israel. And now we're talking about the blessing of Israel. Which one is it? Well, let's put this together. Chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Very interesting. Unique in all of the Bible. This is the one time God says, put me to the test. This is not the idea of testing God 
as Scripture commands us not to do, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, meaning don't see how far you can go in your sin before God nails you. That's what that means. No, this is a different testing. In fact, it's an altogether different word in Hebrew. This testing is what is done to a piece of metal that is said to be pure and flawless. If somebody's selling you a chunk of rock and you say, this is pure gold, and, or the seller says, this is pure gold, you say, well, let's find out. How do you find out? You melt it down. You melt it down, and if it's pure, there will be no dross coming to the surface. What a contrast. And by the way, did you catch this? God has already said that he's going to refine Israel like a refiner's fire. He's going to remove the dross, remove the false elements from her. And now he uses the exact same picture on himself. He says, test me. You will find nothing false, nothing impure. My word will be performed exactly as I said. And what is his promise? If Israel will be faithful to give generously to the Lord, to live a life completely devoted to the Lord, he would open the windows of heaven to provide for them. And on top of that, in an agrarian society, he says in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer, meaning things like locusts and drought and disease won't plague their crops anymore. So the question is, which one is it? Is faithless Israel indicted or is faithful Israel blessed by God? Well, remember the context. The coming kingdom of Christ. And here's the obvious clue. Verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so the testing of God to see just how incredibly faithful he is to his obedient children, the blessings poured out from heaven, the protection of the vibrant crops of the land. This will happen at a time when all the other nations on earth call Israel blessed. When will that happen? That will only happen when Christ returns. Zephaniah three, nineteen says that when Christ returns, the name of Israel will be changed from shame to fame. Now, you might be asking one of the most important questions about the nation of Israel. But what about all the faithful Jews in the Old Testament who happened to be stuck in a nation that overall was snubbing the Lord? What about the faithful ones who are in the building when it's on fire? What about them? Well, here is their hope. Here's the fourth element of the coming of Christ. We'll call this one the revealing of true Israel. The revealing of true Israel. And in fact, Malachi does represent these true believers in Yahweh, those who have a genuine internal reality of faith, those who have received forgiveness of sin by means of repentance and trusting in the future sacrifice of the Son of God. Malachi pictures them as speaking to one another and having concerns. The implication is they're asking, what about us? Chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord... The true believers, the the genuine faithful, those who love their God. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. 
between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. The hope God gives them is pictured as a book of remembrance. It's like God is saying, while I'm rebuking the nation as a whole, I will not forget who my true spiritual children are. You will be remembered. And in fact, they will be, verse 17, God's treasured possession. And a distinction will be made, a separation between the righteous, those who have worshipped God by faith, trusting in His provision of personal salvation, and the wicked, those who have arrogantly proclaimed God as being unimportant to them. And look at the hope He gives His true believers. Chapter 4, verse 1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I would encourage you to watch the news and then read Malachi 4.1. It'll lift your spirits. The wicked permanently separated from the righteous and now it will be the dawn of a new age in Israel an age of righteousness. Here's that dawning pictured. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Then you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The righteous in Israel, he pictures them like, like calves released from their stalls that just go leaping and cavorting about in an open pasture, this beautiful picture of freedom. And he gives his faithful a reminder to obey him, to continue in faithfulness. Chapter 4, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And what will these separated out righteous ones form? Listen carefully. They will form true Israel. In fact, this is Paul's whole point in Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. Romans 9, 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning, true Israelites are not just those descended from Abraham, but those who have a genuine faith in the Lord. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Romans 11.11, 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Romans 11.26, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Israel as a nation must be saved because they are called something in the Old Testament. They are called the elect. What are you called in Ephesians 1? The elect. If Israel is not saved, what hope do you have? True Israel is coming, made up exclusively of those with a genuine faith in the Lord, ultimately found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, don't we long for the separation of the wicked from those who love Christ? We long for that. Yes, we cry out to God for the salvation of the lost. That's our job right now. But ultimately, the end game of God's plan for redemptive history is a massive, massive separation. We've talked a lot about Israel, and you might ask, hey, I'm from Kern County. What does that have to do with us Gentiles? 
Romans 10 and 11 makes an airtight case from Scripture that part of the purpose of God in saving Gentiles, you and me, is to make Israel jealous. And the result is that countless Gentiles are brought gloriously and graciously into the kingdom of Christ. Israel will turn back to their God and all of Israel, every single Jew who is trusted in the coming Savior, if you're in Old Testament, or trusted in the Savior who has come in the New Testament, everyone will be saved. Now, when you preach as often as I do, you're bound to make some critical errors along the way. And just in case you're wondering if we forgot about the angel of the Lord, this is supposedly a message about him. I sort of wanted to save this part, not only for the end of tonight, but the end of this series. We covered the meat of Malachi 3 and 4, but we've saved the bookends for last. Look back with me at chapter 3, verse 1. The beginning of God's answer to Israel, we see two major characters in this verse. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Two major characters here, the messenger and the messenger of the covenant. These are two different people. Who are these messengers? Well, let's spend a moment on this. First of all, who is just the messenger? I will send my messenger, the one who will prepare the way before the Lord. This messenger is also referenced at the end of Malachi. Look back again, chapter 4, verse 5, just a page over. Chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The New Testament tells us who this Elijah is. This is John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. He's the herald of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus himself said in Matthew 11.10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. This is confirmed in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, Luke chapter 1, verse 76, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 7, verse 27. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And in John 1, 23, John the Baptist himself says, He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is all the same person, the, the forerunner of Isaiah 40, the messenger of Malachi 3. The ministry of John the Baptist was to prepare the way For the coming of her Messiah. Well, why not just call him John? Why is he called Elijah? Well, there's two reasons for this. First of all, he did a very similar work to Elijah the prophet, calling Israel to return to faithfulness. That was the job of John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 14, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And the end of Malachi 4 tells us partly what the ministry of John John the Baptist was. Look back again at Malachi 4, verse 6. Last verse of the Bible, of the Old Testament rather. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, 6. John the Baptist came to preach repentance. This is characterized by a softening of the heart and that some of Israel should repent before God curses the land yet again. And so John the Baptist did a similar work to Elijah. But you know this, 
in chapter 4, verse 5, that Elijah comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. What is that day? That is the day of the return of Christ the second time. Now, what we have here is something that's very common in many Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. The compression, the combination of both the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. The first time he came to call the world to repentance, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for sin for all who would believe on him. The second time he came, that he will come, it'll be to bring judgment, to set up his kingdom on earth, having restored Israel, having cleansed the earth of all sinners. But there's a second reason that the messenger, clearly John the Baptist from the New Testament confirmations, is called Elijah. The second reason is, is that the reference to Elijah may very well be a different man who also does what Elijah and John the Baptist did, preparing the nation to repent. Only this man appears with another one. He has a partner. In Revelation chapter 11, in Jerusalem, in the future, during the Great Tribulation, these two men are preaching in Jerusalem, and they're indestructible, even against all who hate them and against Antichrist. They can't be killed. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 5, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They will have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Then they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Does that sound familiar? That sounds exactly like the miracles performed by two men of Israel's past. Moses turning water into blood and striking the earth with plagues and fire coming from heaven and stopping rain from whom? Elijah. Another funny thing, Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven. Moses died, but Satan fought unsuccessfully to steal his body as recorded in the book of Jude, most likely because Moses would need that body again. Another funny thing, the Lord Jesus Christ met with two men from the past on the Mount of Transfiguration. With whom did he meet? Moses and Elijah. I don't know what was said there. I surmise it might be you guys aren't going to believe what you're going to be doing in a few years. Another funny thing, this ministry of these two witnesses in Revelation 7 comes when? Right before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the return of Christ. So we can make a very solid case that these two witnesses preaching in Jerusalem, by the way, with the result that thousands and thousands of Jews will receive Christ as Savior, that these two Jewish evangelists are, in fact, Moses and Elijah, brought back by God for a final plea to repent, to come to Christ. If you're God and you're making one last plea to Israel, who are you going to send? We're bringing out the big guns, Moses and Elijah. That's just the messenger. Primarily John the Baptist and perhaps also actually Elijah himself. What about the second character in Malachi 3.1, the messenger of the covenant? The messenger of the covenant is none other than the angel of the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you we'd get to him eventually. Now, this title is unique to this passage. It's the only time in the Bible He's called this. I want to give you four reasons that this must be the angel of the Lord. And if these don't convince you, I've got one bonus just in case. Here's the first of four. We'll call this one the language reason. 
the language reason. It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Messenger is exactly the same Hebrew word translated elsewhere, angel. Now, we understand that angel is a broad word. Remember, it can mean a heavenly angel. Angel can mean a human messenger, such as the angel of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Or it can mean the angel of the Lord. But we do get a little bit closer here by saying the angel of the covenant. That helps us. There's a second reason. We'll call this the covenant reason. The covenant reason. What covenant are we talking about here? Well, given that this, is, this whole context is the coming of Christ to earth, this has to be the new covenant. There's no other covenant it can be. Jesus told his disciples when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews 9.15, Hebrews 12.24 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the angel of the new covenant. There's a third reason. We'll call this one the syntax reason. The syntax reason. Now, just to be clear, syntax is not a government fee for liquor stores. That's not a syntax. Syntax, S-Y-N-T-A-X. That's the study of sentences and their structure and the construction of sentences. What we have here are two phrases that are in parallel. It's called in apposition. You don't have to remember that. They're both saying the same thing. The Lord whom you seek, the coming Messiah, God in the flesh, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. The Lord whom you seek, the messenger of the covenant, is coming where? To his temple. Therefore, the messenger of the covenant must be God. If he is appearing as a man, he must be Christ. If he is Christ, he must be the angel of the Lord. One more reason, the judgment reason. Verse 2 warns, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who's coming? The messenger of the covenant. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. John chapter 5, Jesus said that all judgment has been given from the Father to whom? To the Son. In comparison to all of Scripture, this can only be the Lord Jesus Christ coming to judge. So you might say, fine, the messenger of the covenant is the angel of the Lord. Why are we calling this message one about the angel of the Lord? There doesn't seem to be a visitation here. The angel, the messenger of the covenant is mentioned, but only in passing. I'll give you kind of my bonus reason here. You remember who the messenger is? John the Baptist and the, and the speaker of, John, of chapters 3 and 4, the one who is giving this oracle to Malachi, the final prophet before John the Baptist would come. Who is the speaker? Who is talking here? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The final speaker of the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-Bethlehem Savior. And this makes total sense. Turn two pages over to Matthew 1. Jesus has spoken in Malachi 3 and 4. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and we never see the angel of the Lord again. Verse 18 of chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit 
and verse 25, the end of the chapter, that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. He introduces himself at the end of Malachi and now we know his name. So if I could say in April, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glory of your word. How could we miss Christ? We understand now how Jesus could rebuke the disciples on the road to Emmaus for not seeing him in Scripture. What a glorious sermon that must have been when Jesus spoke to those two disciples and explained to them from all the law and the prophets everything concerning himself. How we would have loved to have heard that sermon. And yet we can read for ourselves, Lord. We thank you that while Christ is revealed in shadowed form in the Old Testament, our New Testament begins by telling us that Christ has come and his name is Jesus, the Savior. We praise you and thank you for our Savior. We look forward to his coming kingdom. We look forward to the day when we, as part of the Gentile nations, make our way to the glorious nation of Israel to bring our offerings, to bring our joy, to bring our worship, to visit with our Lord, to see all of our brothers and sisters from all over the world, to fellowship with them, to commune with them, to sing with them, to enjoy the kingdom of Christ. May that not seem like a fantasy. May that not seem like some storybook to us, Lord, but may it be the greatest reality of our lives. May there be a day that when we close our eyes for the last time on this earth, that our thoughts and our smile and our affection turn to the kingdom we are about to see. And most importantly, to the king we are about to see. We thank you and praise you for the angel of the Lord. His ministry was perfectly effective. And we thank you that we now know his name, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.